the Making Sense of Life podcast number 44. According to J.K. Rowling, life is difficult and complicated and beyond anyone's total control. The humility to know that will enable you to survive its vicissitudes. The Making Sense of Life podcast will not only empower you to navigate through a fast-changing world, but also to grow in body, mind and spirit. Inward change precedes outer transformation. As the ancient Greek author Plutarch once said, what we achieve inwardly will change outer reality. This podcast is sponsored by Logos Medical Legal. Sunil also works privately with senior leaders. Go to drsunil.com forward slash corporate to find out more. Hello and welcome to the Making Sense of Life podcast with me, Sunil Raheja. On today's podcast, we welcome back a previous guest, Andy Parnham, who we had on podcast number 26, which we call The Search for Happiness. So Andy, great to have you here with us. Thank you very much. Since that last podcast, Andy's written a book called Lasting Happiness in Search of Deeper Meaning and Fulfillment. And um, it ties in very nicely for the fact that this, this area of happiness is something that Andy is really very passionate about and very interested in. Uh, before we talk to Andy about the book, just some background on, on him. Uh, he, Andy was brought up in the West Country and moved to London to study medicine. After some years working as a doctor, he moved into inner city community work in South London and overseas. So he, this gave him an enormous amount of experience in the down, down-to-earth issues that we all face. And during this time, he, he developed and ran accessible courses for the community and trained as a life coach. And one of the courses that he developed that's, that's taken off is called the Happiness Course, which has now spread not just in this country, but uh, overseas as well. So Andy spends some of his time working with, with Livability, a charity that serves people with disabilities. But he also acts as an independent well-being advisor and coach, running amongst other things, the happiness course, in lots of different settings, including schools, health centres, companies, and the voluntary sector. So Andy, let's come back to your book now, Lasting Happiness, In Search of Deeper Meaning and Fulfilment. What, what, what got you to, to write this book? Well, a number of things, really. I suppose... Um Having run the happiness course and other well-being courses for best part of 10 years now, that has given me a lot of not just experience, but opportunity to reflect. And because it's a course that doesn't tell people what they should think, but encourages people to journey in their own lives and kind of reflect on their lives, it's helped me to do exactly that. And so I think one of the main uh, factors in it has been running this course, seeing the results of it, seeing people's lives change, really, and amassing loads of stuff in my head, on my computer, bookshelves of um, books, articles and reflections, if you like, my own stuff, um, that's got me to the point, progressively, where I think, well, here it all is. It's all in my head and in my files. Why don't I get it onto some kind of paper? And obviously the subject itself is something that affects us all. That we, we all want to be happy. Our society tells us that we should be happy. Um, it's such an important and, and vital subject. I think you say something like that. You, you did some Google searches on, on the word as well. Tell us about that. Well, if, when you read the book, um, it's the, the introduction starts off with that. And uh, let me read you. Uh, it says, as I googled 
happiness today. There were 581 million results. A search for how to be happy turned up 626 million results. By comparison, Donald Trump, this was last year, uh, brought up 237 million and Brexit news just 90 million. So it gives you a bit of a sense of where people are at across the world. Yeah, we all want to be happy. We all want to think about happiness. And this book really as it were, unpacks that in, in a very thoughtful and, I would say, holistic way, uh, rather than so many ways that, in our society, that tends to be very trivial and superficial. You explain in the book how our modern world is obsessed with health, wealth and happiness, but you lay out a case for lasting happiness being found instead in relationships, meaning and fulfilment. Can you say, uh, unpack that for us? Because that's quite a lot to take in but uh, and it's certainly not the way that our world thinks we just think well if i had a million pounds i'd be happy and that'd be it but uh, it's much more than that so can just imp- unpack that for us please andy well again just kind of quoting a bit from the very first page of the book really in the introduction it's it, my thinking goes a little bit like this every you could say that every society every culture has what you might call a dominant narrative a storyline um like any play or book might have And it's that which underpins and kind of saturates everything in society. And our society, the Western society, is no exception. So it has a storyline, a narrative, if you like. And a narrative gives meaning and purpose to the whole story. Without it, it's just an anecdotal collection. Uh, And I've just simply suggested that our culture our western culture you could summarize it at the risk of reductionism uh to three words health wealth and happiness where actually happiness although that and i go into the the what we understand by the word happiness a little bit later but in fact happiness is often really understood in our culture as as pleasure because it's very much material and so if you can imagine a circle with a, a vertical line dividing it down the middle so we've got a left and a right side and on the left are these three words health wealth and happiness and in a way they could summarize if you like the values and the fundamentals of our society if you want the good life what should you have well if you've got good health you've got a degree of wealth uh, as much as you want though nobody can agree how much that is there's no end to that really indeed then hap- and happiness as well meaning probably if you divide if you um if you look at the adverts in the media it's more on the pleasure side those are what you need the only problem is and the research shows it as well as our experience that that isn't everything that can be said about life there's more yeah there's so much assumption that as you said that that's all we need and nobody questions it and yet we have a niggling feeling at times that there is more so tell us more. Tell, what is the more well think about that circle again so there's the line in the middle health wealth happiness on the left and the way i've put it in the book is that it's it's like they're like fuel if you imagine you're on a journey just to use that metaphor you're in a car or something you you want to get from a to b where b is lasting happiness if you like fulfillment etc and on the journey from where i'm at, at the moment i need some fuel and in a way those things like well you certainly need some health don't you and a degree of wealth and if you've got enough happiness or whatever to keep you going then why not but the problem is it it seems that that will get us part way but doesn't seem to get us all the way there's still more when we reach the top of the pile materially we think well is that it and so on the other side i've written three 
other words, relationships, meaning and fulfillment. And when you think about the first one, health, wealth, happiness, especially pleasure, more on the material side, they're, they're quite, in a sense, they're quite graspable. They're quite straightforward. We know what it means to have health and wealth and a degree of pleasure. Yeah, you can see it. You can measure it. It's very tangible. Yes. Yeah. So when it comes to the other things, relationships and meaning, hmm, what's that about? It feels more touchy-feely, very soft. Yeah, and not so tangible. You can't grasp it. So, And that's the point. Uh, but the research is very clear the last 20 years or whatever on happiness and well-being that the things that are most crucial to us uh, are not so much the wealth and the material stuff, but these other intangible things. Just to mention one thing, then come back on that. Um, when I'm on the happiness course, the first thing I do is on a sheet of paper, flip chart or something, write the question, what makes you happy? And ask people to think about it. And they come back with their answers. And they come up with all kinds of things. So, for example, um, what would you say, Sunil? What makes you happy? Uh, being able to go on nice sunny days and going for a walk on a, on a nice sunny day. Um, having, um, yeah, doing ex- you know, I, I enjoy swimming when I'm able to swim and do exercise. Time with family. Um, having fun, like that, those things make me happy. Exactly. And so those are precisely things that people come, they come up with things about people, family, friends, and so on. They come about nature, going for a walk, maybe on holiday. They, they talk about their dog. They talk about food. They talk about maybe things that are meaningful to them, like it might be their faith or in their work achieving something, things like that. And the interesting thing about that is the things they don't say. So they... Rarely, if ever, do I ever hear people, and I've done this screeds of times, do I ever hear people say, oh, well, it's my computer, I really love my, my smartphone, my designer clothes, my car, even my house. It doesn't come into it. And here's my conclusion, that the things that make us happy, that give us um, deeper satisfaction in life, just than the immediate, are things that don't cost us money necessarily it might to, if you go on holiday but just being with friends and family not or appreciating nature and so on they're unsophisticated things but they relate to people and things that give us meaning and so those relationships and meaning and fulfillment on the right it turns out are indeed the things that give us the deepest satisfaction and yet all the advertising says you have this latest smartphone this latest computer this latest car then you'll be happy you'll have arrived you'll have achieved and and as you said, the research does not that bear that out at all. Yeah, it's extraordinary. In fact, I would go so far to say, quoting uh, a man called Ed Diener, who's the psychology professor in the States, who's seen as Dr. Happiness, kind of, he's done the most research on it. And he says this, of all the people that we've studied, who are the happier people, um, every single one of them, without exception... And he's a scientist talking. They never hear a scientist say that. They usually say, well, uh, the, uh, the, the majority. It's more, it's more, yeah, we, we need more research or, there's, uh, the, or we're, it, it could be this way or that way. But what, what does he say? Well, he says that of all these people who are happy, not one, or put it positively, every single one of them has rich relationships, a network of relationships. So the point, number one, is if, if you want to be happy, have healthy relationships. Okay, yeah, that's a big takeaway take message, really. For, for lasting happiness, it's rich relationships. Be rich in relationships. That's, that's really helpful. Um, let's move on. Um, you, say, you say we tend to look at the good life as being about increasing pleasure and reducing risk. So getting more and more of the things that I want 
enjoying my life and doing it in a way that doesn't put me at, at, at risk of losing it. Um, so you think, I mean, I suppose, yeah, make sure that my pension pot is, is safe and secure and that it, 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 nothing's going to happen to it. Make sure that um, I'm as healthy as possible and that I do all get screened for any illnesses and things like that. Um, that sounds all good and well. What, 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 what's wrong with that? Nothing wrong with it at all. And we all want to. Um, that's why those words appear on the on the list: health, wealth, and 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 pleasure or happiness, of course. Um, and we live in a society where, overall, certainly compared to other situations, and in the past, uh, we live in a relatively affluent and healthy context. Does that make us fully happy? Well, yes and no. And uh, a little, little bit later on in the book, I talk about how you could also summarise our our approach in our society as uh, the pursuit of pleasure and the avoidance of pain. Now, there's nothing new about that. Two and a half thousand years ago, the Epicureans, the ancient Greeks, were saying exactly the same thing. So it's not as if we suddenly discovered it. But what seems to be very clear is that if we only pursue pleasure, that's hedonism, isn't it? Hedonic. Um, and there's plenty, plenty of people who in the past and the present, that's the main thing in their life. There's a dimensions of life, and I've already hinted at those, that will not be satisfied simply by getting more stuff. So in a way, the pursuit of pleasure and the avoidance of pain is two slightly separate things. They're put together, but the pursuit of pleasure is what I've already indicated. The Pleasure is primarily material, isn't it? So whether it's eating a, an ice cream or sunning yourself on some beach somewhere, it's, it's physical, it's material. But it's the less material things that are in question, and no doubt we'll come on to that in a minute. That's the first part. The second part is the avoidance of pain. Now, who wants to have pain? And it's obviously a no-brainer to know that people don't want pain. But, but in a sense, that is saying something a little bit more than just, I don't want to have pain, physical pain in my life. It's actually saying um, not just um, avoiding pain, but, but being risk-averse as well. Not just pain-averse, but risk-averse. And, and with having achieved a fairly high degree of comfort materially comfort zones we we not only want to have more but we fight quite hard to maintain what we've already had and loss uh is something that we don't don't want but turns out to be part of life and yet we have this very simplistic view that if i'm happy i i should just keep on having more and more of it and and ignore the reality around me. And indeed, and it's interesting when it comes to material things, as compared with relationships and meaningful life, there is, well, Seligman, the, this guy Seligman, talks about two problems with that. One is they fade. So you have, you know, a piece of chocolate cake and it only lasts the pleasure as long as you're eating it. So it fades, doesn't last material pleasure. But the other thing is something a little bit more sinister. Usually, in order to get the same buzz from it, I need perhaps just a little bit more, which is, of course, the basis of addiction, not just alcohol and drugs, but what's retail therapy? I just need to keep getting more stuff. And so it's called hedonic adaptation. And so if I'm not mindful and thoughtful about this, I can very much easily get into some kind of addiction cycle, trying to get 
going trying to go to the same things again and again, trying to get more and more happiness. I mean, they say one definition of insanity is doing the same thing mm. again and again, expecting expecting the same result. And so, if I'm not thoughtful about my choices and the way I'm living, in many ways, I'm running after the wrong things to to find happiness. And this is really important because a whole, you know, our world functions like this. It, it and you give examples in your book of, of two countries, uh, Qatar and Japan, that in a sense have um, got a lot of material wealth, got a lot of the good life, as you as you say, as as you talk about, um, you know, in terms of health, wealth, and happiness, and yet it it there's some quite sober statistics and 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 findings from those countries. Yes, I mean um, Qatar is a tiny little state in the in the Middle Eastern Gulf, Arabic, uh, Arabian Persian Gulf, uh, but by most measures, materially anyway, is the richest country in the world. It's wow. gross domestic product, so and it's going to host the, is it the twenty? Uh, yeah, I think twenty twenty two World Cup or something like that. Yeah. So whichever way you look at it, they're a rich society, very very rich, and yet when you trace, and really it's only the last few years, really, 10, 20 years, I don't know, something like that. But when you trace the social trends and the impact socially on, um, you know, populace, divorce is 40%, uh, people are I- increasingly obese, huge proportions of that. And in fact, the same kinds of things, stress, anxiety, and the rest of it, same kind of things that we've been experiencing in the West for a generation or so, are now coming into Qatar. So that's one of course, Japan, even much longer. The point about these other countries is they don't have the same cultural background as us. You know, Middle Eastern culture, Far Eastern culture, very, very different. And so Japan, which since the Second War has been progressively rich materially, and yet has such a um, problematic social consequence of that that they've actually invented a word for it they call it karoshi karoshi which is just describing the stress the anxiety that men go out uh, to work they've lost their jobs but it's such a kind of shameful thing that they they just go out haven't got a job and then come back and disappear from home kind of the suicide rate is the highest in the developed world and so on so it kind of seems to me that as night follows day whatever your background culturally once you start to set the focus and the aim on material wealth as the aim in life um, then the social consequences follow all over the place one other is Bhutan which is for the last years been celebrated as the happiest country on earth at least by some measures but only I don't know within the last 10 years um, they've had television come into the world uh, into their uh, culture and some of the same factors are emerging as well. So suicides and so on. So it doesn't really matter which culture you're looking at. It seems to be that the the same process is going on. It's quite, yeah, so very, very sobering and challenging. And obviously in, in our Western culture, we, we see that as well in, in Britain, America, um, in Western societies. But as you say, this is there seems to be some truths emerging that are relevant wherever you are whatever your background whatever your culture and and as you say you know intuitively we know money doesn't buy happiness we we say things like that and yet we live our lives in a very different way from what we actually profess so and we're going to obviously we're going to have some more interviews because this is such an important subject but 
one final question to ask you on and, and to expand for us, Andy, is on this podcast anyway, and we'll, we'll explore more later on. What do you actually mean by happiness and wellness? Because again, I know you've, you've talked about this. Um, we've broken down, you know, that we should really be focusing on um, relationships and meaning and happiness. But what do we mean by that? Because again, that seems very subjective. It can mean so many different things to so many people. And yeah, just expand on that for us. I will. Let me just quickly say something about money. Um, it, it, the evidence seems to be pretty clear that if you start off poor and you're unable to send your children to school, even properly put a roof over your head, etc., then increased wealth does have a, a dramatic increase on your satisfaction. Yeah, because you haven't got anything. So when you've got something, yes, that's, yeah, I, I can see how a, a, a phrase I, I came across was, I cried I had no shoes until I, I met a man who had no feet. So when you can put it in, in those stark terms, and obviously it does bring happiness. Yeah. So, but here's the point. So it increases, but only up to a point. And I think that's the point that comes over and over again with material things, the wealth, etc. You reach a point where the, plat the, the curve plateaus. And so no matter how much more, once I get to a certain level, um, no matter how many more cars I have, houses, swimming pools, designer clothes. I mean, how many cars can you ride in at any one point? And so it, it just platters. So that's one thing about money. But just to go back to the thing about happiness, I found, uh, I've mentioned this man, Martin Seligman, a few times. He um, started 20 years ago as a psychologist, something called positive psychology, which is focusing, and a lot of the research has been in this domain, into well-being and so on. Anyway, he, he in his very helpful book, he he writes about three kinds of happiness. They call it subjective well-being. Think about it, it's, it's, it's a bit of a tricky word, isn't it? So I'm happy when I'm eating this ice cream, but I'm also happy when my long-lost family member, who I thought died 40 years ago, suddenly turned out. I'm happy, but what kind of happiness? But they're, but they're completely different things, aren't they, as well? They're, it's apples and oranges. It, it, it's, you, you don't really compare those things. Yeah. So when And the other point about happiness is that when we hear in our culture happiness, we think pleasure, really. Happiness is a smiley face, positive emotions, and everything's going swimmingly, which can be true, but not necessarily. And the question arises, so what happens when they aren't going swimmingly and I'm not, I'm not having very positive emotions? That... So anyway, the long and the short of it with Seligman is that he he talks about three types of happiness. If you like. One is pleasure, which we've talked a bit about, hedon, hedonism, hedonics. Um, the second, though, he says, um, he calls it engagement, which is a bit of an awkward word. But when you think about when you're engaged with something or someone, you're involved, don't you? You're committed. So you're, you're you're totally absorbed into something. You're in the present moment. It's it's all you're thinking about. Yeah. He didn't pay me any um, attention because he was so engaged in his book, that kind of thing. So that domain of of satisfaction isn't so much on the smiley face side of things, but is something that. Uh, involves me you could say involvement investment so it could be reading a book certainly on a relational dimension perhaps work or hobbies that kind of thing satisfaction demands a bit more of me um, but gives me satisfaction the third domain so we've got pleasure engagement uh, is meaning and so he talks about that as something as beyond me and mine where the focus actually isn't really on me at all as it is in pleasure and to some extent even engagement uh, but rather it's on that which is other, 
than me. So it might be relationally, communally, um, nationally, or it might be um, a commitment to a cause. It might be faith or philosophy or whatever, something that is bigger than just me. And the focus is going further and further out from me. And that isn't really connected with pleasure at all. So, you know, the example I would often give would be Mother Teresa, who was utterly given. But when you read her diaries that were published after her death, she had all kinds of anxieties and things. So, So it's something that is deeper and therefore more fulfilling. And I find that really helpful because you can you can have meaning in your life whether or not you have pleasure or even on the other level of engagement. Obviously, all are important. They're not mutually exclusive, but they're different. And so the meaning, as, as it were, can, as it were, subsume or drown out any particular anxieties or fears or, or unhappiness. Well, the classic example is parenting, isn't it? So talk to somebody who hasn't had children, but they'd like to have children. It, it's this dream of little ones, patter of tiny feet. Isn't that wonderful? And that's true. Um, but then you talk to a parent who's been, you know, that f- and has got two or three kids and they've had a few sleepless nights and ask them how much hedonism, how hedonic, how much pleasure there is. Well, sometimes when everybody's happy and you're bouncing on your knee, everything's wonderful. But later that evening, that night, you're up at 3 a.m. and they've got toothache or, so, or a headache or something. It's not so. So the whole thing about pleasure and all the research shows this, that it's full of meaning full of meaning and who would want to lose their child it's it's the most one of the most important things in our lives but if we're talking about pleasure and positive emotions all the time well we need to look elsewhere for that so some really deep thoughts in terms of really understanding what happiness is that's so different from our society that can be so superficial superficial and trivial about these things uh, and as i said we really need to unpack this more and we're going to do that in um, in some future in some future podcasts as well um, any final thoughts you want to say? And particularly, I'm thinking, I mean, you've touched on this, but um, practical ways to have true happiness. I'm, I'm trying to use those words, really, uh, or lasting happiness, or rather than just the, sort of the pleasure-centered world that, that we live in. Because obviously, we, we have to live in this world with, with all its different challenges. We've, we've got to get things done. And um, as you said, there's, there's nothing wrong in, in one sense with um, finding pleasure in your ice cream or in... Um, in um, in buying um, your gadgets or toys, as it were, but you've got to understand that that it'll only give you a certain level of, of, of happiness. So, just any final thoughts? Absolutely, yeah, you've put it really well. Um, right at the back of the book, it's the last, uh, it's the second appendix. Um, although I'm not um, keen on lists to make you happy, do this, this, these eight things, and you'll have unloyed happiness the rest of your life. I, I don't like that. However, there are a number of things that you can do, of course, like getting enough sleep, exercise, healthy diet, you know, obvious, obvious things on that level, but other things as well. And the way I've arranged it is this, and it, it crops up early in the book, that on the one hand, over on the left, I've put the word what, then over a little bit towards the right is how, then who, then why. What, how, who, why. And for me, that's kind of in four words sums up the framework that we're talking about. And in this appendix, I put it this way. We need to learn to handle the what, the what being the material world that we live in, and especially in a culture that's gone bonkers on materialism, we need to have understanding and wisdom about how to handle it and not get 
taken down unhelpful pathways. The second one, how, is more how we live our lives, especially relationally and experiencing the, the strength and the weakness of that, the capacity to make choices and so on. But as you edge further over towards the who, then we get into relationships and meaning and so on. So the who represents the, the relational side of things. And I've already discussed all the way through the book how crucial that is. And there's loads of stuff on that. And then finally, uh, the why. This man who we may talk about a bit more is called a, a Holocaust survivor, uh, Viktor Frankl. He was a psychiatrist. Um, and he said this, those who have a, he survived three years in Auschwitz. Those who have a why, W-H-Y, to live can bear with almost any how. And I think it's a very powerful understanding. He learned through experience that those who tended to survive Nazi concentration camps were those who had something to live for, whereas those who tended not to, in his experience, were those who didn't have a reason to live beyond the immediate situation. And if you like, they could find meaning and purpose in spite of their brutal, horrific situation that was separate from the horrible and tragic situation they were in um the reality that was around them that they could look beyond that thank you andy the book is lasting happiness in search of deeper meaning and fulfillment something that we we all hunger and thirst for whether we whether we recognize it or not um so thank you again andy and uh, we'll, we'll carry on the conversation thank you If you've enjoyed today's conversation, you can get all the show notes for this episode from drsunil.com. And could you do us a favour? Head over to iTunes to rate the programme. This is by far the best way to get this content into the hands of those who need it most. Also, do you think about who you could pass details of the podcast on to? Don't forget to check out the blog for more great content. That's drsunil.com, helping you to make sense of life in a challenging and complex world. Until next time, goodbye for now.